If you haven't developed trust from your firefighters, the crews underneath you, they're not going to respond as quickly to you. They may not respond to you at all uh, when the situation is um, very stressful. I think that they're going to follow your orders because they believe in you, because they know you're doing what's right for that situation. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. Enchanted Sky Studios in Prescott, Arizona. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code 3 features interviews with leading members of the fire service, discussing firefighting strategies, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. This is the show for and about firefighters. We're informing and entertaining members of the fire service, just like you, from coast to coast. If you haven't yet had the experience of having a victim of a structure fire die, all I can say is, you will. It's not something anyone can really prepare for, and especially if you were the one who pulled the victim out, It never gets any easier. Thankfully, most fires these days don't result in fatalities. But what changes when you arrive at a working fire and a bystander tells you there's someone inside? That's what we're discussing with today's guest. John Lightley is a battalion chief in the Youngstown, Ohio Fire Department. He's got over 20 years on the job, and he's seen his share of civilian fatalities. I'm going to preface this interview by saying that I was doing it based on knowledge of a specific incident where one man died last year. I was unaware until later that just weeks later, John's department had also been involved in fighting a tragic fire where five children were killed. I've added some more material on that at the end of the interview. And joining me now to talk about all this is John Lightley. Welcome to Code 3. Uh, thank you, Scott. I really appreciate it. I appreciate what you do from a journalistic standpoint. Uh, we appreciate the uh, good work that you guys are doing. Well, thank you. That is my goal. So, let's get into it. Given how often they're wrong, how much credibility should ICs give a bystander who reports someone inside of a burning structure? That's the biggest challenge. We have to take... We have to believe them every single time. Unfortunately, so often, at least in my experience, uh, the people have been wrong. But it's 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 our duty to uh, do as much as we can to prove that c- citizen who's telling you someone is there to prove that they're wrong, or to verify that they were correct. Unfortunately, I think this gets a lot of crew members in trouble um, sometimes when they don't take the the few seconds to ask more questions about why the person believes people are inside. I've had people who don't even live in the area stop me and say, oh, somebody lives in there. And when you ask them, where do you live at? Like, oh, I, I'm not from your town. Well, that, <laughs> that puts, puts it further down my list of priorities. However, like for my department, uh, we search as much of the occupancy as possible 
And there might be somebody in one of the rooms that's completely engulfed as the house, you know, burns to the ground, but we'll still search every portion that we can just to verify. Then our investigators do a good job of following up with questions and so forth for the uh, the person who called it in or who might have been standing on scene telling us that there were people inside. Human nature being what it is, is it appropriate to work harder on a primary search when you believe there might be a victim inside? Well, you said it correctly. Um, it's human nature to do that. Um, your mind engages in a different manner. Your emotions tend to spike a little bit more when you have good reason to believe there's people inside. Certainly if there are children inside, my crews always seem to work a little bit harder. But I'm not so sure that's the case for our department uh, in particular. I think we take every search as this could be the one where we find a victim. So we take it very seriously. But perhaps part of the human nature is our mind tells us we're working harder uh, because, you know, we believe people are inside. But it definitely does, I think, make your heart race faster physiologically just when the person says, yes, I can see the person in there. Or I saw the hand in the window. And your gut just kind of tells you that they're telling the truth. So from an emotional standpoint, yes, I, I would say we search harder, maybe not so much physically or tactically. What would you consider to be the natural response versus the trained response when a firefighter encounters an unresponsive victim while they're doing a search? I would say the natural response is, oh, what's that? Oh, oh my, I found one. Uh, maybe one of a little bit of shock or surprise because in training, we always know that we're going to find that, that dummy or the um you know the mannequin the right the and, hose and when you find in. when you find it it's not going to be a person either way it's going to be a dummy or Correct. a load yeah absolutely it, the mental aspect is completely different but even though when when you go in looking for a victim and you touch one a uh, real person i think there's that mental jolt to your system i think the crews that have done better training and preparation recover more quickly, they go into action a little bit faster. They're like, oh my goodness, this is not good. Okay, deep breath, let's solve this problem. Whereas some of the ones who may not be as prepared, who may not do it as often, it might take them a, a few extra moments to calm down uh, mentally or emotionally from it. Now, part of the responsibility of keeping everyone calm on the fire ground, at least in their area of responsibility, is the company officer. What can he or she do to keep the firefighters under their command focused and not let them go running off to be a hero? It starts well before the fire ever begins. I'm a big advocate, of course, of doing the hands-on training and preparation. But I'm also an advocate for the company officers, the chief officers like myself, to do mental training. When you're driving through your town, pulling up to an intersection, doing a scene size up of the building at the corner and mentally forcing yourself to say out loud what you would do should there be a report of an occupant inside. So that that type of preparation beforehand, I think, is critical. But as far as on the fire ground, if you haven't developed trust from your firefighters, the crews underneath you, they're not going to respond as quickly to you. They may not respond to you at all uh, when the situation is um, very stressful. I think that they're going to follow your orders 
because they believe in you, because they know you're doing what's right for that situation. So they're less likely to freelance or do things on their own. But when they don't trust you, when they don't believe that you know what you're doing, they doubt your skills. I think that's where we start to see more freelancing. My officer doesn't know what he's doing, so I'm going to have to solve this problem on ourselves. So for me, my experience, the before fire preparation is probably the most critical. Many years ago, when I worked for a PBS television station, every few months we did what we called begging for dollars. That's one way to put it. We also called it fundraising. And the objective, of course, was to get people to call in and pledge their money to keep the station operating. Now, I was much younger back then, but I remember asking one of the people in charge, why don't we just say if you don't give us money, we'll go off the air and then put static on the screen. The man looked at me and said, no, we don't do that. That's alarmist. Besides, if we didn't actually go off there, we'd look like we were lying. So I won't say that if you don't pledge to Code 3, I'm going to go off the air, because that's not true. What I will say is that your pledge of $10 a month or more will definitely make life easier here at Code 3. It's how we keep the lights on, keep the air conditioning running, and keep the bills paid in general. Now, I know it's weird that I'm asking you to pay for a free podcast, but what I'm really asking you to do is support something that you really like, something that you listen to, and that maybe gives you a little benefit to your career. In return, you'll get access to the Bull Sessions, which are after-interview interviews on various different subjects, and only people who pledge $10 a month or more ever get to hear them. I'm adding more pretty much once a month, sometimes more often, and it gives you something extra for your money besides the good feeling that you're keeping Code 3 running. So if you can help, if you've got $10 a month, that's what, maybe two Starbucks coffees, please go to Code3Podcast.com slash support and make your pledge now. I really appreciate the help and I hope you enjoy the show. Several months back, you were involved in a structure fire that resulted in a civilian fatality. Although it was a while back, I'm sure you still remember it like it was yesterday or even this morning. What mm-hmm. can you tell me about that day and how things went down? First of all, my crews did a terrific job. We showed up early morning hours, report of two occupants inside, heavy fire throughout the whole second floor. And within moments, my crews had the lines stretched and were working on forcing the front door. They initially met resistance uh, opening the front door, and that was because the victim was directly behind the front door. The individual had been trying to escape the fire and, and passed out and was overcome by the door. My crews did a terrific job of pulling that victim out onto the front porch where I made a decision that kind of threw them for a loop, I think. They understood it after the fact. But as soon as the first two companies got that victim onto the front porch, I told them to continue on into the house. The truck company was doing search, and the engine company had the the hand line. So often we're used to taking that victim all the way 
to the front yard and starting EMS. But I had no other crews on scene at that point. I had no EMS on scene. So my mindset was this victim is out of the house. There's nothing we can physically do for him at the moment. A quick glance uh, showed significant injuries. And I still had full belief that there was another victim inside the house. So it only took them a moment. But I think going back to what I mentioned earlier, I think they trusted me enough to know that I saw a bigger picture than they did. So they quickly went in to start attacking uh, the fire while doing a simultaneous search. Subsequently, we were able to determine through the help of our uh, police department, phone calls and such, that the other occupant was away from the home. They were not in there at the time of fire. But it was a good 30, 40 minutes before we had clear confirmation of that. So my crews did a great job. They worked hard. At one point, we had to go defensive because we were starting to experience some um, roof collapse. Uh, the guys the guys didn't want to come out, and, and I appreciate that from them. But it was the right thing to do to pull them out. We kind of uh, regrouped on the fire, and we went right back in and continued uh, working. That house is still standing. So I don't think we need to be afraid to, to pull out for a quick reset um, and go back in. But my crews did a terrific job, Scott. Now, a couple questions about that incident. First of all, knowing what you know today, would you still have asked your crews to leave the victim and continue searching? Or do you think that if they had been able to stick with that victim, that person might have survived? Knowing what I know today, I would still make that same decision. The the extent of the burn injuries were just pretty much in, incompatible with life. My fire department does not run EMS, so we had would have had to wait a few minutes for the private ambulance company to respond. So even if they had moved the patient to the front yard where we could have started basic CPR, there was still a delay in advanced life services. They did get pulses back for a little while at the hospital, but they were more as a result of the uh, medication. So the fact that we removed him to the safest location that we had available to us. And I'll be honest, I don't think I could have lived with myself if while we were taking him to the front yard, which was going to be a difficult maneuver, a lot of stuff on the porch, a heavy body, a lot of burn injury, it would have been a difficult move. I, I would have felt terrible if if the other occupant had just been a few feet inside that we didn't catch for another five or six minutes. You know, so at that point, it really came down to examining the whole situation and making a, a decision that you have to live with the rest of your life. But I, I feel, especially, you know, of course, in hindsight, but I feel even if I didn't have the benefit of hindsight that the that we made a good decision. But at that point, you have to make a decision and stick with it. Um, a lot of leaders, they want to waffle back and forth. And I think that creates more problems sometimes. Make a decision, the best information you have possible, and move forward. Now, you say that your guys were trying very hard to continue the search. Did they search longer than you would have thought necessary? In other words, did they finish a primary search, then go back to a secondary and simply continue looking because they were sure there was still someone else inside? I, th I think we searched longer because we had high belief that the other occupant was in there. Um, I allowed them to operate in deteriorating conditions 
longer than I might have if we'd had no other reason to believe people were inside. We, we took that risk it, and I feel 100% that it was worth it, even knowing in hindsight that she ended up not being in the house, for which we're thankful. We pushed that envelope as far as we could. So yeah, they, they searched longer and perhaps a little bit more intensely than they would. What we ended up with was basically almost doing a primary and a secondary search at the same time. One crew would sweep a room and move on to the next. And then almost immediately we had another crew coming behind them, you know, just to verify. So uh, the guys were very thorough for which I was very pleased. There's of course no blame to be laid here, but I'm curious what level of responsibility you as the incident commander felt after you found out that the civilian went fatal. I, I take that personally. Firefighters hate to lose and any time we lose a civilian, we feel like we let them down. But I temper that with the fact that we gave him every opportunity for survival. There was just too much fire before our arrival. Our department is very quick out the door. We had an extremely short scene uh, arrival time. The fact that the guy stretched that hose line and got that front door open you know, perhaps within just a minute of being on scene, we gave that victim every opportunity, just wasn't in our favor that night. So while I take responsibility, I'm also cognizant of the fact that I don't control the overall destiny of people, but I do feel we need to give them every chance that we possibly can. John, in December 2018, another structure fire in your city killed five kids all under the age of nine. Did your department learn anything from the first fire we were discussing that was able to be applied to that one? One benefit, if you will, anytime you lose a life, there's it's sad. But there were some things that we identified from our single fatality that I think helped us with our five children that we lost. That even though we lost them, our operations still ran a little bit more smoothly because of the fatality we just had. So I think there's something to be said for that. Because in retrospect, as much as you hate to say it, losing an adult who's, you know, middle-aged is not as emotionally damaging as losing five kids all under the age of nine. So that, that was a bit of a pickle there, you know, just a few short weeks later. All right, John Lindley, thanks for talking with me on Code 3. Absolutely, I appreciate it, Scott. And we put some more information about dealing with civilian fire fatalities on our website, code3podcast.com slash civilians. Check it out. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. I'm always looking for your comments about the show. Just email me, scott at code3podcast.com. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To contact us, get more information on today's topic, or subscribe to the podcast, go to code3podcast.com.